of riches. And I'm sure if you've read it and if you've studied it, you'll feel exactly the same way about Ephesians. It's a great letter, it's very deep, and it deals with some great mysteries and some great truths. And if you read and study Ephesians, the goal should be, the outcome should be that you will end up praising God and glorifying him. You might have noticed tonight, that's the theme of the sermon. It should be the theme of every service, everything we do. The glory of Christ, the gospel, the grace. But it all ends up pointing to him. Today we're looking at just a small section. I mean, when I'm preparing this, it's very difficult actually because you go off in all kinds of directions. One thought leads to something else. You have to cut it down, especially on a Sunday evening. And um, David is going to continue next week uh, from verses uh, 11 to 14. But there's enough in here to, to write a whole book and volumes of books. Did you know that verses 3 to 14 of Ephesians are actually one sentence in the Greek? So it's one long sentence with no punctuation. Of course, the New Testament wasn't written with punctuation. And speaking, you could give this to your students and see if they could punctuate it in a right way. It just sounds meaningless in English if you, if, you know, without punctuation. That's been added later on. This is what we, what's called a doxology. So some of you are familiar with this term. It sounds quite old-fashioned. Doxology is a, is a bit like, um, not exactly a poem, but an expression of praise to God. Um, when you read this, you can't help noticing that Paul is pouring out his heart, isn't he? And he's praising God, and he's just laying layer upon layer of praise to God for things he's done and for who he is. When I was preparing this, a little voice in my head asked me a question, Ben, when was the last time that you were moved, moved in your spirit to praise God? You know, the Bible... The gospel is meant to move us, isn't it? I mean, there are, it's not about glib and shallow feelings, but there is meant to be something felt, something known in your heart, something that stirs us up as a people to glorify God. It's not supposed to be just a load of facts that we repeat, and uh, every week we gather together to repeat those facts to one another. It's supposed to stir us up to praise God. And if, if I achieve anything tonight, then that, that will be it. I want you to praise God for his grace and for his glory. In these passages, we see the grand sweep of history. God's plan to glorify himself. And it starts, if you notice, before the world begins. Who can fathom these mysteries? Before the world was created, you can't even call it history, prehistory, if you want to call it that, in eternity, God's eternal purpose to glorify himself and to bring a people to himself for his glory. If you read this, you'll notice that the term in Christ is used an awful lot. I haven't actually counted. I did count, but I forgot. If you want to, count how many times the words in Christ are used here or similar in the one he loves, in the beloved, variations on that. I think there's at least 15. Could be wrong. What does that tell us? It tells us, doesn't it, that Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ, is central to God's plans and purposes. You have to start with Christ. If you don't start with him, you don't get any of it. You don't get to enjoy any of these spiritual blessings that we read about. It starts with Christ. It finishes with Christ. Christ is in the middle. Christ, first, last, and everything. Christ is central. You can't understand God. You can't come close to God. You can't have any relationship with God. You can't glorify God without Christ. 
It's very important that we should be in Christ. We should be found in him. Before I start properly, I should mention to you, some of you may be, may be annoyed with me tonight and say, well, you didn't, you didn't expound that enough. You didn't, didn't speak enough about redemption. You didn't speak enough about certain other things. It's impossible in this short time to really go into great detail and depth about all these matters. I'm sure in weeks ahead we'll, we'll be able to pick up on some of these things. So, so if, you know, don't feel shortchanged tonight if I don't go into great detail about everything because it's simply impossible because of a lack of time. Two questions tonight I'd like to answer. First question is, what has God ever done for me? Now, put your hand up. Has anyone ever had anyone say that to them before? What has God ever done for me? You have? Good. It's not just hypothetical. Okay. Second question, does God only help those who help themselves? Because you get this kind of proverbial saying, don't you? God helps those who help themselves. Now, I read something shocking. I looked this up. Actually, apparently, they did a survey in America amongst Christians. I think 68% of Christians in America believe this was a biblical truth. Now, saying that, quantifying that, there, there might be a way in which that is true in some ways. So, for example, if I... If I decide to stay in bed and not go to work in the morning, I can't really expect God to bless me and put food on the table. But is that a truth? Does God only help those people that help themselves? So we're going to answer those two questions tonight. So if you were a non-Christian and someone says to you, this non-Christian says to you, what has God ever done for me? What could the non-Christian answer? Can you just shoot me a few things that a non-Christian could thank God for, that are kind of God's common blessings that we can all share. Life, the weather, health, anything else? No, but if they, they could potentially, I'm not saying they do, but things that they could, everybody in the whole world can praise God for. Family, yeah. Job, employment, yeah. In fact, the list is endless, isn't it? Every good thing comes from God. The Father of the heavenly lights. Every good thing. The sunset. I don't know if you enjoy the sunset. I love seeing a nice sunset in the western sky from my window. So many blessings. And if people had a mind to see it, they would glorify God and praise him for these things. Every single person can thank God for the air that we breathe, for the planet in which we inhabit, for food. I know there are people who lack certain things which are necessary for life, but there are so, so many things. What does the Bible say? Jesus says this, God causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. So the sun's shining in the brightened sky and people are on the beach enjoying it and whether they're good people or bad people, righteous or unrighteous, they all can enjoy the sun. That's a blessing that God gives. That's part of what we call his common grace. He gives to all humanity in abundance. What did Paul say when he was confronted by some unbelievers in the book of Acts? Paul appeals to the people. He says this, God has shown you kindness by giving you rain from heaven and crops in their season. He provides you with plenty of food and fills your hearts with joy. So this is Paul talking about God's common grace. It doesn't matter who you are, God has blessed you in some way. God has provided for you with crops and food and the joys that people experience. Even something as ultimately meaningless as winning a football match or even winning the World Cup. I think you can enjoy that 
People enjoy that, that pleasure, that joy. If it's, if it's a pure joy, it comes from the Lord. The ability to enjoy sport and human effort and art and music and all these things. Here's a verse in Proverbs that you, some of you might know. So it says this, He who finds a wife finds a good thing and finds favor with the Lord, from the Lord. Okay? Amen to that. People get married all the time, left, right, and center. Maybe not as much as we'd like, but they do, don't they? People get married. People find life partners. That's a reason to praise God. That's God's provision. Not just for the Christian, but for the non-Christian as well. Common grace. And yet, sadly, we know, don't we, that the majority of people do not actually praise God and thank God for these blessings. What does Romans 1 say? For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. And I think you can pretty much sum up the attitude of many, many people in Brighton. They have all these blessings. If only they would acknowledge it, if only they would see that this is the hand of God. Perhaps things that would point them to him in some way. Creation, the stars at night, the sea, that's, that's there to point us to God. Even as human beings, we find ingratitude, we find it repugnant, don't we? No one likes it when you give someone a present or do a kind act and the person fails to say thank you, fails to express gratitude. Before God, ingratitude is not just unpleasant or rude, it's sinful. And we see in Romans a very dark picture of humanity, blackened by sin, corrupted, and ingratitude is part of that. Sometimes, I think this is a bit, of a bit of a dilemma we have as Christians. Sometimes we want to pray for the good and well-being of non-Christians, don't we? So sometimes I go into the, to the lanes and I see some Christians, they have a chair, a prayer chair. And they offer to pray for non-Christians, for all kinds of things. Is that legit- legitimate? Should we pray for people that, you know, Mr. So-and-so's got a bad back? Or Mrs. So-and-so has got a failing marriage? Or so-and-so has got cancer. Is it right that we should pray for those things for people? Well, of course, it's a natural human desire, isn't it? For people we care about, we should pray for their well-being and for their good. But let me say this. I don't believe that a non-Christian has any right to come before God and expect him to bless them. God may, in his mercy, bless them. We see Jesus healing people who are ungrateful. But a non-Christian, a person who does not know Christ, has no right to approach God or approach his people and and expect to be blessed because they're not part of his family. So that was a non-Christian. This is something that non-Christians could praise God for if if they were minded to. But what can a Christian, what can Christian people praise God for? Is it just the same list? I'll tell you the answer in a minute. That's the right answer. So, it's always one heckler, isn't it? That's a, <laughs> that is the right answer, by the way. So I'm not going to preach any heresy tonight. Listen, you Christians, we Christians have extraordinary privileges and blessings. Spiritual blessings in heavenly places which have been poured out on us in Christ. And I think a lot of problems come as Christians because we fail to understand our status, our privileges as children of God. And that's why we learn, isn't it? That's why we come together in church, as well as having our private Bible reading, coming together to hear the Word of God, hearing it expounding 
these blessings, explaining them, teaching them, applying them, so we understand more, more richly the things that we've received from God in Christ. And tonight we're going to look very briefly, time flies, isn't it? We're going to look very briefly at this package of blessings that God has given his people. Turn with me to Ephesians 1. And I wanted to look at um, verse 4 and 5. For he, that's God, chose us in him, in Christ, before the creation of the world, to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which is freely given us in the one he loves. Two words we need to notice here, and I, I know for some people this may be a new idea, and for some people this might be controversial. But I'm happy to talk about this. But let me say this, this doctrine that we're looking at tonight is deeply precious to me. It wasn't always precious to me. I remember the first time when I became a, when I became a Christian in, in the garden in my parents' house reading the Word of God and seeing on every page of the Bible this doctrine. I mean, not every page, but through the whole Bible like a golden thread, this, this idea that God is the one who chooses. God is the one who works. God is the one who saves. I read that and I was so angry and indignant. I couldn't escape it. It was there jumping out of the page. I, I remember saying to my mother, is it really true? She said, it is true. And I remember I was actually cross with God. But, you know, over the years, this, God has done a work in me. He's made them, applied these things to me and made them so precious. And it's really important, if you don't understand these things, you should talk to somebody about this so you don't get a... There is a kind of caricature of these doctrines which can mislead people, okay? Two words. God, he, that is God, chose us in him before the creation of the world. And there's a word here in verse 5, predestined. Some translations say foreordained. What this means, the word means, is to determine something beforehand or to ordain something to happen. In, in fact, to decide ahead of time that something should be the case. Paul says to the church in Ephesus in verse 4, God chose us in Christ, in him, to be holy and blameless in his sight. And later we read that he, he chose us to be adopted as his sons. What did God choose us to be? He chose us to be holy and blameless. Did he choose us because we were already holy and blameless? No. What God did in his mercy is he, he looked upon this world and he chose for his own purposes a people from amongst that unholy, ungodly mass of humanity of which we were a part. He chose people, by grace, to be holy and blameless in his sight. It's very important you understand that he didn't look ahead in time, into the future, and say, that person is a holy person, so that person will, will be one of my children. No, because none of us are holy. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. He chose to bless people, certain people, with the gift of holiness. When it says here that God chose us to be holy and blameless in us, in us in his sight, it's talking about two different things. I want you to be clear on this. The first thing is talking about positional holiness. What this means is, is that our status as, as people who have broken God's law is sinners and unholy and under condemnation according to the law. And what God does, 
the Bible uses the term justifies us. Through Christ, through faith in him, he takes away the positional guilt and he declares us righteous because of Christ, because of his death. So God looks upon us, even though we are sinful and weak, he looks upon us as people that have never sinned. He looks upon us as people that are holy in his sight. The guilt is cancelled and we are declared innocent in Christ. That's the first way. And the second thing is says blameless. So it's just talking about practical holiness. Wouldn't it be a strange thing if God declared us to be holy, but actually we were still mired in sin and living in darkness, walking in darkness? So what God does, he doesn't just transform our status and give us a new status, a holy status, but he actually changes us from within. He gives us his Holy Spirit and a new heart which desires to serve him and glorify him. In fact, over your lifetime... Over my lifetime, the Lord is gradually working to make you holy. That is God's great purpose for you and I. It's not to make you happy. It's not to make you fulfilled. You will, be, you will know joy and you will know fulfillment, but the purpose is not to give you an easy and comfortable life, but to make you holy, to make you like Christ. So remember those two things, positional holiness, declaring you righteous, something you could never, ever earn by your own work, something that's given to you as a gift, and then another gift, the Holy Spirit, which makes you more like Jesus say a lot more about that. Did you notice in verse 1, it talks about the saints in Ephesus. Now, we need to, of course, be, be careful with this word. It's not a helpful word because people, when you think of saints, you think of stained glass windows and halos and stuff. Saints, holy people, set apart, sanctified people, a consecrated people, set apart for God's own use. If this, you're a Christian, it's talking about you and me. Saints in Ephesus. Ephesus was a city much like Brighton. Cosmopolitan, corrupt, lots of different gods and lots of different idols and ways that people followed. But for these people, these saints, Ephesus was not their standard. Ephesus was not what defined them. They were defined as saints, as consecrated people who belonged to God in Christ. Let me illustrate this for you. So I think in my my grandmother's house, I often mention her. She's, She's a kind of rich fountain of sermon illustrations She's dead now, so she'll never know. But dear old Nan, she used to have a um, bone china tea set in a dresser. And uh, she had a collection of plates from around the world. I don't know why she collected plates, you know, with pictures on them. That china tea set very rarely came out. Okay? So when we were eating chips, fish and chips, from the chippy down the road, we didn't, she didn't get out her kind of best plates and best china. We sort of ate the chips off them. Nor did she let my granddad use one of her best china cups made in Stoke-on-Trent, Roald Dalton, to, to you know, stub out his cigarettes. And neither did she use one of those nice cups and put it in the bathroom to put all the toothbrushes in. You, you've all got a cup, haven't you, in your bathrooms with a toothbrush holder um, with kind of that liquid at the bottom that comes off the toothbrushes. You don't use bone china for those kinds of purposes, do you? Unless you've got a screw loose. Those cups and plates were for a special purpose, consecrated, as it were, for, for special guests to come. Obviously, my family didn't qualify as special guests because we never saw it. But you know, that's what God's people are. We are consecrated and set apart for his use. We are special, holy people. We're, we're not destined for just commonplace things. When did God choose us? Verse 4 tells us, he chose us in him before the creation of the world. 
I want you to remember that God's plan for salvation is not his plan B or his plan C or his plan D. Our God doesn't make mistakes. Our God doesn't have a second choice backup plan in case the first one goes wrong. God is not like a chess player. This, this thought occurred to me. You know, if you, who plays chess? I play chess. I sometimes win. You play chess. You're supposed to think five moves. You play chess, don't you, Richie? You play, you're supposed to think five moves ahead and try and second guess your opponent what he's going to do. And then, what, I don't think five moves ahead. I think one move ahead. I see what my, my opponent does and I just respond to him. Is God like that? Is, is this what God does? He's, he, he looks down from heaven. He sees people. He thinks, oh, what are they going to do next? Oh, so-and-so's done that. Oh, I didn't expect that. I better respond in this way. Of course not. God's not like that, is he? God is sovereign. God is in control. He doesn't respond to anything. He sets his agenda and he he fulfills it. And nothing can can thwart it. Let me read you a quote from Stephen Hawking, the late Stephen Hawking, A Brief History of Time. He makes a comment about what happens before the beginning of the world. If one believed that the universe had a beginning, the obvious question was what happened before the beginning? What was God doing before he made the world? Was he preparing hell for people who ask such questions? Very droll. You know. Probably Stephen Hawking, very sadly, is finding out more about hell now than he ever speculated on while he was alive. What we see here in the Bible, in Ephesians, is a glimpse into a great mystery. We see a glimpse into the world, not to the world, the, the, to where God was before time began. We're not told much about this in the Bible because it is a mystery that we humans cannot comprehend or really look into. Think about the, the dressing room, the England dressing room yesterday. How would anybody know what went on at half-time in the dressing room, what Gareth Southgate said to his players? The only way we could know is, if, I suppose, if you had a secret camera in there and a microphone, but if somebody who was in that room at the time came out and told people, told journalists what was going on in that room, otherwise it would remain hidden and secret. Think about that important cabinet meeting in Chequers yesterday with all the, uh, the cabinet meeting to come up with their wise plans for Brexit. No, nobody would know what went on in that secret place unless somebody came out and revealed and spilled the beans and said, oh, Boris Johnson said this and so-and-so said this. That's how we know what went on there. And there's no way that any human being could have known what took place before the world began unless God had revealed it in some way by his spirit. We're given a very privileged view into what went on before the world was even made. The word tells us that your salvation and my salvation began long before the world was created. It wasn't, as I said, that God just looked into the future and saw that you would choose him. Nor did he choose you or me because he he saw something better in us. If you you and I were God, we would choose the brightest and the best, wouldn't we, to be in the kingdom? You know, look around us. (laughs) I don't mean that. You know what I mean, though? The the kingdom of heaven is full of ordinary people, isn't it? There are brilliant, intelligent people in the kingdom of God. There are people who are very, very humble in the world's eyes. God fills his kingdom with people. It's by grace. He doesn't just choose people who are gifted and clever. He chooses them as well. He chooses all kinds of people. It's a great leveler so nobody can boast. 
It's not favoritism. This is, this is another idea. People say, oh, this is favoritism. God, God picks people, you know, he has favorites. It's not because of anything in them. If you're a teacher, I don't know if Mark's like there's a few other teachers in here. If you're a teacher, teachers t- tend to have favorite students in their classes. When I, when I was an English teacher, even, even in the kind of week I was teaching, I sort of developed my own favorites. So I had to work very hard not to, uh, to show it. Yeah. Don't know if I did. It's not favoritism, it's by grace. There's no reason for it except that God, it pleased God to do it. It pleased him, just because. It's not a lottery either. Have you, I don't know if you've seen that film, it's kind of a 90s disaster film where the Americans saved the world. There's so many of them. Deep Impact. Remember there's a sort of comet that comes to hit the earth and um, they, have, they have a lottery so that some people can go into a bunker underground and perhaps survive the kind of tidal wave. Was it that God randomly selected people, the kind of lottery machine in heaven that selected certain people by chance? So, you, you know, you're lucky, your numbers come up, you're going to be saved. Of course, that's absurd, isn't it? What does it say here in the Word? If I can find the verse I was looking for. It says this, according, verse 5, in accordance with his pleasure and will, in the beginning of verse, uh, the end of verse 4, in love he predestined us. It just, just pleased God. For reasons best known to himself, it pleased him. And it was in love. It doesn't mean that you and I were always children of God. We know that we were dead in our sins before we, we believed in Christ. But you know, this, this means that at the right time, it would be inevitable that you would be a child of God because God loved you in Christ before the creation of the world. He wrote your name in the book of life. Why? You can ask him one day when you stand before him. And I'm not going to steal David's thunder, but next week we'll look at this. When you believe, verse 13, when you were included in Christ, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, that's the moment you become a child of God. You're adopted. But before that, you may have had many years of walking far from God and rebelling against him. But if he chose you in Christ before the creation of the world, it's inevitable that you will be saved at a time when it's pleasing to God. When I look back at my life, I see that God arranged the circumstances to bring me to a point where I was, I was ready to receive the gospel. And that's the same for you, isn't it? Think back to your life. Think how the Lord led you, in a sense, in those years before you knew him. His hand was upon you. You may not have, you probably didn't acknowledge it, you probably weren't aware of it. And yet, you look back and you see, the Lord led me to a particular point in my life, brought an evangelist to me. My friend spoke to me about the gospel. I picked up a tract on the train. When my friend invited me to church 50 times and I refused, one day I decided to come along. What was it that prompted you to come to church that day? What was it that wore you down? Was it just your friend? Was something deeper going on? What was it that caused you, having heard the gospel so many times and it coming off you like water off a duck's back, what was it What was it that one day opened your heart to believe and receive? Like Lydia. You remember Lydia in the book of Acts? The Lord opened her, her heart to receive the message, to accept the message. How is it that you are a Christian? Is it just a choice that you made? The question is, why, why did you make that choice when so many other people make a different choice? If you have 100 people in this room and you preach the gospel about Jesus Christ, the cross, two people might respond and 98 may go away totally hardened. Why do those two people respond? 
Are they more intelligent? Are they wiser? Are they morally superior? Why are you the only Christian in your family, perhaps? Are you, you know, wiser than your siblings? Or more, were you naturally more inclined to kind of, maybe you're just a bit soft? What is it? What was it? At that time when you received Christ, it may have seemed like, seemed like your choice, but when you think about it, something more deep is going on, deeper is going on. What was it that made the light bulb come on, that suddenly it all made sense, that you were concerned about your sin? If you're, if you're honest, and I'm going to be honest with you, you know, I didn't choose Christ. I couldn't have chosen him. You know, I'd, I'd heard everything before, and it, and it made sense, but it, it hadn't penetrated. And then over a period of time, something changed, something worked in me. And I give the glory to God because I believe it was the Holy Spirit working in me by grace. If not, if it is something to do with us, we would have a reason to boast, wouldn't we? You know, I'm not like all those people. I chose to be a Christian. No. Dead in trespasses and sins. It doesn't make any sense. I can't respond to God. I can't bow the knee to Christ unless he does a work in me. There's one quote that I read about once in A.W. Pink's book, The Sovereignty of God, which this quote struck, stuck, me, stuck with me because it really, really kind of um, sums up my, my experience. Four years after I became a Christian, this is um, no surprise for you, Spurgeon again. When he was 16, when I was coming to Christ, I thought I was doing it all myself. And though I sought the Lord eagerly, earnestly, I had no idea that it was the Lord seeking me. I do not think that a young convert is first aware of this. I can recall the very day and hour when I first received those truths, the doctrines of salvation, sovereign overcoming grace into my own soul. When they were, as John Bunyan says, burnt into my heart as with a hot iron. And I can recollect how I felt that I had grown on a sudden, sorry, grown all of a sudden from a babe into a man, that I had made progress in scriptural knowledge through having found once for all the clue to the truth of God. One week night, when I was sitting in the house of God, I was not thinking much about the preacher's sermon, for I did not believe it. The thought struck me, how did you become a Christian? I sought, I sought the Lord, but how did you come to seek the Lord? The truth flashed across my mind in a moment. I should not have sought him unless there had been some previous influence in my mind to make me seek him. I prayed, thought I, but then I asked myself, how was it that I prayed? I was induced to pray by reading the scriptures. But how, how did I come to read the scriptures? I did read them, but what led me to read the scriptures? What's the point Spurgeon's making is that although it, it does appear to be a choice, and it is a choice that we're given, we will always make the wrong choice. Our will is in bondage. Unless God does a supernatural work and opens our eyes and gives us the gift of faith, we always will choose to reject Christ and go our own way. And although, although we, we, we feel that we've made that choice to believe, although we present that choice to people, believe in Christ and be saved, although we do all those things, we know it's the work of God that brings people, that saves people. And Spurgeon found out, he said, I feel like I've grown from a child into a man. This is the truth, the sovereignty of God. God is sovereign. God is working out his purposes in everything, including salvation. I wonder how you feel when you ponder this doctrine. I'm just racing through it for the sake of time. As I said, it was very offensive for me at first. But it came to be precious because if God has chosen us, then nothing can pluck us from his hand. If my salvation was something that I chose, I could just as easily choose to walk away from God. 
But by his sovereign grace, I persevere because he's chosen me. By grace, I don't deserve it. I'm nothing. I'm a sinner, as you're all sinners. By grace, he chose you. And all through the Bible, we see a choosing God, a God who chooses, a God who elects, a God who saves not by merit, but by grace. And he deserves the praise of his people. Back to the word. Um, it says this, verse 7. In him, in Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. I haven't got time to talk much about this tonight, but redemption is a wonderful, key, glorious doctrine in the Christian life. What is redemption? Basically, it's the deliverance by payment of a price. If I park my car in, I don't know where, somewhere in Brighton, uh, double yellow, anywhere in Brighton, (laughs) you obviously know Brighton well or something. A car would be impounded by the council, and I'd have to go to wherever they take the car and pay a massive fine to get my car back to me. The people of Ephesus would be very familiar with a picture of the slave market. Slaves were, were to a penny in the Roman Empire, everywhere. That's how society functioned. A slave could be set free if a ransom was paid for that slave. Money could be paid, the slave could be freed. They would no longer be considered a slave, but they would be a free man, able to operate in society. Perhaps in modern, modern terms, we can think of a hostage. You know, someone's kidnapped. If someone wants to kidnap my children, they can, but they won't get much. Because I haven't got much to give. But this is the idea, isn't it? That people are kidnapped, they're held hostage. And money is paid to release them and set them free. How are we slaves? We're not slaves, none of us are slaves in, in the kind of economic system. We're slaves slaves in many ways, aren't we? We're slaves to sin. We're slaves to the law, which we've broken. Our status is sinners, and the reality of our lives is that we are sinners. This is before we were Christians. Only one person can free us from the status of slavery and give us a new status. Only one person can take away your sinful nature so that you're no longer a slave to doing wrong, a slave to sin, a slave to self-righteousness, and count you as a free man in Christ. Our status is guilty. The law is against us. We can't choose Christ. We're totally lost. And friends, let me say this. Never, ever, please, never try and excuse the human condition and say we're not really that bad. The reality is we're far worse, far, far worse than we could ever imagine. We're lost. We cannot choose Christ. We cannot respond to him. We we love our sin. We drink it down as though it's water. Our predicament is really, really severe. In a slave market, the only person that could free the slave was somebody with money who took pity on the slave and said, I want to free you as an act of grace. I want to deliver you from slavery. You can't do it, but I've got the means to do it. Pay your master, you're free to go and live a new life. As Christians, we we know, don't we, the Lord Jesus Christ was the only one who could and did come to set us free from slavery, bondage. 
But unlike the man in the slave market, it wasn't money for which he paid for us. It was his blood. A sacrifice had to be made. Somebody had to pay the price. Somebody had to step in and die on our behalf to pay. Someone has to die. If it wasn't for, it wasn't for Christ dying, we would die. We would be judged. An innocent party has taken our place. Christ has redeemed us. Redemption through his blood. The blood is central to the redemption. Without, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. And then moving on, it says this. Actually, in verse, verse 4, going back to verse 4 and 5, he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ. Friends, it wasn't just enough for him to cancel our sins. He could have done that, cancelled us, and declared us free to go. But God has done something even more than that. He's adopted us. So God has taken the slave, the rebel, paid the price for their freedom, costly as it was, brought them into his palace and said, I give you all the rights and privileges of sons, my own children. As I said earlier, we weren't always God's children. Ephesians 2 says we were children of wrath. Romans talks, us about, talks about us being God's enemies. It wasn't as though, you know, if you're predestined, you're born into this place. There's this time when you are far from God, aliens and strangers. But then God has done a work through faith in Christ. He's brought you into his kingdom, adopted you. I think we have such a small, withered view of this, don't we, as Christians? It's not just some notional thing. This is, this is reality. We need to, to grasp it. And if we did, our lives would be transformed. Our God is so loving, full of abundant grace. He saves those that can't save themselves. And why did he do this? Once again, in accordance with his pleasure and will. It pleased him to do so. That's why. Look at this, verse 5, verse 9, verse 11. talks about God's will. He works out everything in, in conformity with the purpose of his will. God willed to do it. He chose to do it. When were we adopted? I mentioned this already. When you put your faith in Christ, when the Holy Spirit drew you and regenerated you, and that day when, when the light bulb came on, when you understood that day, your status changed from being a slave and a rebel and an outcast to being a child of God, deeply beloved, a deep, a very heavy price having been paid for you. See what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. And as children of God, we have all the, the rights and privileges of the natural son. If I go to the level and a little boy comes up to me, a random child comes up to me and says, please, mister, he probably wouldn't say that, but please, oi, you, buy me an ice cream. I'd say, I beg your pardon? But if, if my Daniel came to me and said, Daddy, please buy me an ice cream, I, I might buy him one because he's my child. And in a sense, although, you know, I love all children, you know, in a sense, my own children are precious to me. They have, respons- they have rights and privileges which other children don't have. We have that as Christians. But also, my Daniel, although he has, he has the right to expect me to feed him and clothe him and support him and love him, he also has certain responsibilities. And I have a right to exercise discipline over him and to, to chastise him and to guide him and to shepherd him. So it's a two-way relationship, and it's the same with Christian. 
you're a Christian, you're a son of God or a daughter of God, you have all the privileges, but you also have responsibilities. You're a child in the family. And one doesn't come without the other. So answering my question at the beginning, does God help those who help themselves? The answer is an emphatic no. God helps those who can't help themselves. Grace, that's what grace is, an undeserved favour. Let me very briefly talk about this final point, God's great aim. I don't know if you notice um, verse 9 and 10, particularly verse 10. To be put into effect when the times will, will have reached their fulfillment, to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. We started, didn't we, right at the beginning, before the world even began, God choosing and electing his people to be holy and blameless in Christ. Now we see the culmination, the consummation of all things. This is quite a mysterious verse, and even experts debate what this really means. Some people think it has to do with the Jews and the Gentiles being reconciled in Christ. I think there's an element of that. We see that later in Ephesians. But as I understand it, this is talking about the time when Christ comes again, and this disjointed, chaotic, sinful, rebellious, hurting, messed up world will be fixed, will be put back together, and the harmony that was lost at Eden will be restored. Not a fairy tale, is it? This is what the Bible says. Christ is coming, and he will put right all the injustice and wickedness of this world. And Christ will be seen to be king. Heaven and on earth, new heavens and new earth. All shall be well. There will be harmony. There will be restoration. With Christ glorified and seen by the whole world. God's enemies will be subjugated, decisively dealt with. And friends, let me say this. History, history is moving towards this event. And nothing can thwart it. Nothing can prevent it. Nothing can stop it. Christ reigning bringing things, all things together, uniting things which were separated. No scheme of man, no politician, no ecological disaster, no weapon that can be devised will stop this from happening. It will happen. It's inevitable. God purposed this before the world began and is moving all history towards this, working out all things in accordance with the purpose of his will. Is your God a sovereign God? Or is your God a God who meekly looks on and responds to human activities? No, friends, the precious truth is that he is sovereign. He is in control, fully in control. It's a mystery. We don't understand that. There is human free will. We're not just robots or pawns on a chess table, but there is a sense that God, not a sense, there's a reality that God is in control. God gets what God wants. Great comfort for Christians in this chaotic, as I said, chaotic and sinful world. You might think things are careening out of control. Well, they're not, because God will bring this to pass in his own time. Brief points of application, very briefly, okay? First of all, remember, remember, Christian, your high, high privilege and status. You might be, like me, a very ordinary person, a very sinful person. But if you are a Christian, you are very, very precious and special to God. And let me say this, it's better to be in a stinking prison cell somewhere or being persecuted and know God and know that you are his child through grace. It's better to be that and have a wonderful life and all the things your heart could desire and yet be separated from him. 
Next time you're on the bus and it's a wet morning, and you know, there's puddles everywhere, and you've stepped in a puddle, you've got a wet foot, you think, what am I going to this pointless job for? When you're changing nappies, think about this. Sitting on the train, you know, whatever it is, the 7.45 to Victoria. Maybe you're an older person who thinks the best years of your life have passed you by. All your friends are dying off. Maybe you're a young woman who you're looking for a husband and you can't find anyone. You think, well, is it, have I left it too late? Maybe, as I said, you're just doing a mundane job. Maybe you really enjoy your job. Maybe you're a person struggling with depression. There are people in our, in our fellowship who struggle with this. Your thoughts trouble you at night. Maybe you've got money worries or regrets. If only I'd done that differently, or if only I hadn't done that. Maybe you've got all kinds of family problems. These things can weigh heavily upon us. You know, friends, there are no ordinary people. I think C.S. Lewis said that. There are no ordinary people in the kingdom of God. The fact that you are a child of God, beloved in Christ, chosen by him, gives you an enormously precious status. You, you might be sitting on that bus. You might look like everybody else. We do. We don't dress differently, but we are different. We are privileged. We are children of the king. I'm a child of God. God cares for me. God loves me. God knows me. I have a relationship with him. Praise God. And friends, let me say this. No matter what trauma you've been through or are going through in your life, don't let that define you. Okay? You're not a victim. I, I, I know, I accept, I acknowledge that people, in, even people in this room have experienced terrible hardships in your life. It's very painful. And God understands that. God cares about your pain. He's patient. But let's not get into this kind of victim mentality. Woe is me, my life is so bad. You know what? If you're a Christian, it doesn't matter how difficult your life is, you are a child of God and he loves you. Doesn't that get you up in the morning with spring in your step? We struggle, don't we, sometimes? We need to be in church. We need to be hearing the word of God. As I said, when the word of God is preached, we, we understand more deeply God's purposes, our status as Christians. That's why it should be a joyful thing to come and hear the word of God. It shouldn't be a, a kind of drudge, a chore. You take that off and go and enjoy the rest of the Sunday. Come unto the word and, and feast upon these great truths. I've just touched the surface tonight. Grow in understanding and teach others. And may we never ever feel that we've heard it enough. Oh, I've heard that a thousand times. Tell me something new. There's nothing better than this. Tell me the old, old story. Steve chose that hymn. It's an old story, but it's a glorious story. What is there higher and greater than this? You know, friends, yesterday in London there was a pride march. Uh, I think it was 30,000 people marched and a million people gathered to celebrate LGBT diversity. That's what it said on the radio. As Christians, we can feel under the cosh. We can feel marginalized. We can feel that Christianity is in decline, that evil is rampant, that people mock God with impunity. Lift up your heads. Do you think God is in control of this? Do you think God is not working out his purposes? Or has he kind of lost control of the wheel? No, he hasn't. I remember last year at Pride, I was here and I walked down London Road. It was heaving with people. Drinking, partying, 
every kind of weird and wonderful thing. You know what? I, I grieved. But then I, I thought, what's going on? And then I realized I'm a child of God and I can lift up my head high. By grace, I'm not better than these people. I'm saved by grace. And I can lift up my head. I'm a Christian through Christ. And that is you. That is your privilege if you're a Christian. And let me say this as well. Think about that high status and calling that you have as Christians. Chapters 4 and 5 of Ephesians tell, tell you. Ephesians starts like this. This is, the, the, this is the doctrine. And after that, this is what you do about it. This is how you work it out. Those things always go together in, in preaching. This is what the Word says. This is the teaching. And this is how, it, how you are to respond to it. There is, a, it is a, Chris said it this morning, there is a right way to live as Christians and a wrong way. There's an, an appropriate way to behave. Imagine a royal prince... If you were to see Prince William, I don't know, princes do behave badly. If Prince William lost his head one day and started just, I don't know, doing very embarrassing and foolish things, or heaven forbid, the queen, wouldn't it be, she would lose all her dignity. There's a way that the queen should behave which befits her position. And Christian, you have the most exalted position, higher even than the queen, in spiritual places. Let's behave in a way which is worthy of our calling. There have been times in my Christian life where I've been in places which I shouldn't have been and doing things I shouldn't have been doing. And I almost hear this voice in my head which says, what are you doing here, Elijah? What are you doing? This is not who you are. When you were dead in your sins, that's what it was normal. You didn't see any, anything different. But now you are a Christian, a child of God. There's a right and proper way to behave which befits a child of the king and a citizen of the kingdom. Just finishing up, but this is important that we hear this. Don't think, don't use the doctrine of predestination to think that you can get away with anything and it's okay because I've booked my ticket and booked my place in heaven. And I've met people that have done this. Foolish. God called you to be holy and blameless. If the pattern of your life is not exhibiting growing holiness and desire to be blameless before God, if that's not the pattern of your life, you have to question what grounds have I got for thinking that I've been predestined? Because if you have been set on that path, last week we were talking about the narrow way, weren't we? If you've been set on that path, you will grow through many failures and faults. You will exhibit holiness because that is who you, what you've been called for. What a noisy child. Listen, if you're a Christian, God has not put you on a probation period, Okay? It's not like, imagine a child that's been expelled from a school, some misdemeanor, and the head teacher says, I'm going to give you one last chance. You've got six months, and if you mess it up, you're out of here. I used to think God was like that. You know, I don't believe God's like that. God's not about to kick you out of his kingdom because you haven't lived up to the standard. You're saved by grace through faith. And if you're his child, nothing will pluck you from his hand, ever under any circumstances. And guess what? You can't even walk away from him if you're truly converted. But don't use that as an excuse to be blasé and casual and indifferent. Say, oh, I can do what I like because I'm a Christian. If you do that, then there's no reason to suppose that you truly are converted if you live in, in kind of sin and immorality and worldliness. Because God has chosen for himself a holy people or to make us holy. So remember your status and calling. Secondly, and shortly, proclaim the gospel with confidence. As I said just a minute ago, you can see that the, you know, evil is prevailing and the gospel is 
declining and withdrawing and the church is making little impact and we can resort to all kinds of gimmicks, can't we, to try and win people. But remember this, we don't need gimmicks. Jesus said to the man who was demon-possessed, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he's had mercy on you. We're to do the same, aren't we? We're not to keep it to ourselves. We don't know, do we, who are God. There's not some green light hovering over people that says this person's predestined, preach to them. We're called to preach the gospel to all creation. Let God, God knows who those are his. Let him do the work in people. We preach. Trust him to do his work. Acts 13 says this, When the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and honoured the word of the Lord, and all those who were appointed for eternal life believed. The word was preached, those who were appointed before time believed because God was doing his work. Think about the parable of the shepherd. You know, one sheep is missing. The shepherd goes over, over the hills to bring back the sheep into the fold. That's what he does. Your name's written in the book of life. He brings you and he, he puts you back into his flock. And there's great rejoicing in the presence of the angels. God is pleased to save people in love. It's not a grudging thing. And if you're not a Christian... None of these privileges are yours. But yet they may be. They may be if you believe. If God is doing a work in you, these, these things may be yours as well. If you call on Christ and put your faith in him. The third point is perhaps the most important of all, the most precious. This book is like a toolbox of precious, or a, a box full of gems. Precious gems. I, I almost feel, giving these to you, I have to be so careful how they're handled. This is, this is the crux of the matter. This is the heart of the message. Be thankful to God and praise him for his grace. Hebrews says this, Through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that openly profess his name. As I said before, salvation is all of grace. There's no boasting. We don't look down on others. We don't despise them. We have pity and concern for the lost. I remember once, recently somebody mocked me because I, I looked at some people who were, who were obviously lost in sin. I said, poor, poor people, lost. They need, need grace. And I was mocked. But we must be concerned about people who are lost. We must be concerned for them. Because the only hope is Christ. And what a great leveler it is. What, no matter who we are here, we might be, you know, brain of Britain, we might be... Might not be. The only reason we're here, any of us, is because of Christ. Human works and worthiness have nothing to do with it. Listen to this, friends, just to put the cherry on the cake. The ultimate aim of creation, of history, of salvation, of theology, of all that has been made and can be known is this, that the triune God will be magnified in the praise of the glory of his grace. This is not about us, ultimately, it's about him. His glory, that's why he does all this for his name, for his renown. And our church exists to bring glory to him. And I pray that we would have the grace to do that. I'm sorry it's gone on so long, but I pray that you've, you've been blessed in some way. Let's sing our final hymn.